Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 76, Glenn and I are joined by Matt Fitzgerald, the author of Race Weight, The Endurance Diet, The Lean Look, Diet Cults, and many other books and countless articles. I asked Matt to help us better understand how the older athlete can thread the needle of managing body composition while having enough energy for exercise and high-end performance. Yeah, it's that body composition thing. That's my polite way of talking about getting more muscle mass while losing excess body fat that causes health issues and slows me down. It's an old problem, and as we get older, that hard problem just gets harder. You, me, everyone I know has some level of difficulty in managing body composition. True, each of us has our own unique set of challenges, but the overall challenge is related to the need for energy and recovery and the ease with which we eat more calories than we burn. The general concept of more calories out than in is much easier said than done, and the talking heads and marketing gurus are full of solutions that don't work at all or don't work for long enough. So what can we do? Well, Matt is a no-nonsense guy who has studied the science and the practices of top athletes around the planet. He carries the torch of science and doesn't have an axe to grind. No, there is no easy answer, but his advice is sensible, and I think you'll extract some value from his advice. I know I have. All right, let's talk to Matt. Matt Fitzgerald, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. All right, hoping to be wise for you and your audience today. All right, Matt, welcome as well, too. (laughs) I'm sure you will be, man. Anybody who's written as many books as you, you must just be full of wisdom. Um, I don't even know where to start. I mean, you're a high-performing athlete. You are an endurance coach to uh, runners and triathletes. You're a nutritionist and... I don't even know how many books. I mean, just off the top of my head, you've written Performance Nutrition, Racing Weight, The Lean Look, Diet Cults, The Endurance Diet, and I know there are many others, including your latest On Pace. That's just amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. I like to write, and I have a lot of ideas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, the gift is in being able to. Um, I like to write, too, and I have a lot of ideas, and nobody's asking me to write a book. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, the podcast is for older athletes. Glenn and I are older athletes, and and, uh, we, we just sort of started down this journey to try to talk to experts who could provide knowledge for older athletes, you know, you, so much of the stuff that you hear, you read on the internet and podcasts that you listen to, you know, it's all for elite, you know, athletes or scientific studies of 20 year olds in college. And <laughs> I'm just not sure how relevant that is to me. And so, I, you know, we went down this path to try to see if we could come up with some useful information for ourselves and for our audience who follow us along on this path. So thank you for joining. Okay, with all of the stuff that you know, that I know about. The two things that I, I, th- I think are the most interesting to me, and I'm open to whatever comes out here. The two things that I'm the most interested in is two problems that I deal with personally, and I think are pretty common with the older athlete. One is managing my body composition. I guess I'm, I'm a bigger person, and whenever I've been racing, especially if there's any hills, <laughs> I'm at a tremendous disadvantage. (laughs) And so, you know, being lighter, you know, and I, oh, I could spend $2,000 and I could, you know, knock a few ounces off my wheels. Oh, that ain't going to matter. I mean, I weigh 200 pounds, you know, a couple ounces isn't going to do it. So, you know, I've always sort of had an interest in how could I keep my weight and I don't want to lose my, 
muscles. It's my body fat. How can I get that down? And it's not like it's high, but I would just like it to be lower. Why not? You know, and then there's the vanity thing. I, you know, I, I want to look good. Uh, you know, I think most people do. And that kind of relates to the body fatness. But the problem that I've got is that I struggle to control what I'm eating when I'm exercising all the time. And so I'm curious to know what your solutions are. Well, you know, how, how do you think people like Glenn and I, and Glenn's a skinny some bitch, so hey. I don't think he's got any <laughs> issues. But, uh, but, you know, a person like me, a bigger person who, you know, went in high school, I played football. What should I do to manage my weight while I'm also trying to manage my recovery and manage my fuel so that I can get my exercise and, you know, all of that. And then related to that is this question of sugar. You had written an article in Training Peaks about sports drinks and the sugar. And you made the point that those sports drinks are not health food. They are performance enhancers. And that rings true I am a bit of a sugar phobic person. I, I try to eat nothing with added sugar. Even to my performance detriment, I'll, I'll try not eat as little sugar as possible even when I'm exercising. Just because I, I don't know, philosophically, I'm, I'm just trying to not eat sugar. But maybe you can weave into this story how to do that without overdoing it. Anyway, maybe you've got a solution for that. What do you think? Do you think we can cover that? Of course. You're making me very happy. Before we dive into that, Matt, I wonder if you wouldn't tell the audience a bit about you and why don't you just like tell us what all your books are and, and like what the thesis for each one of them was. Oh, shoot. I mean, I think it's uh, people, people ask me like how many books have you written and I, I tell them I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's, well, I, I was it's, just on your website, so people could find it there. But tell us yeah. the ones that you know are the you're most proud of, maybe. Yeah, you know, you know, my my three. Yeah, so you know, I am focused on you know endurance sports. I write for yeah. um, a readership of endurance athletes, and, and uh, you know, the three pillars of performance uh, that are most interesting to me and that I focus on are training nutrition and psychology so um you know you mentioned the endurance diet you know that's that's a book where i i uh it was just a great excuse to travel around the world i you know <laughs> i'm not a scientist but I, I i put on my scientist hat for that one and studied the diets of elite endurance athletes uh in kenya and brazil and canada and japan and the u.s um and nice all over the world, yes, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, but of all, I I have uh, you know an, an abiding interest also in the psychological dimension of endurance sports. So books like Brain Training for Runners and How Bad You Want It and the Comeback Quotient are very much focused on that pillar of endurance performance. And then on is the that training sort of like side, how people can. I'm just trying to understand. Is that like how people can? get the most out of themselves and not quit prematurely, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You know, you know, there's uh, if, if you look at the research on, you know, what exactly defines performance limits in, in endurance, it's kind of fuzzy. Uh, you know, like, you know, anything longer than a sprint is not a sprint. Um, and, you know, and, and, uh, and this gets actually to the topic of my most recent book on pace, which is about, 
you know, the art and science of pacing in endurance sports. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're never actually, you know, in your effort to finish any a race of any distance as quickly as you can, you're never actually working as hard as you can, or at least you better not be until you're actually within sight of the finish yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're actually encountering psychological limits before you ever encounter physical ones, which makes, yeah. you know, you know, the stuff we're into very different from a lot of other sports. Um, right. And then on the training side, I've written just, you know, a but, bunch of nuts and bolts types of, of books uh, I'm a, I'm a total geek for, you know, training science. Uh, so 80, 20 running, uh, run yeah. like a pro, even if you're slow, are, are books in that vein. So kind of, you know, the, the, the three pillars I have them pretty well covered. It, it, don't ask me about equipment and technology. I don't, I, um, that's not my bag. Uh, so okay. there, there are other, there are other dimensions of, you know, endurance performance that I'm, you know, less experienced in writing about. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, we're going to put um, a link to your website in the show notes and people can go there and they can see what your books are. And let's get into this. And, and maybe you've got kind of a framework or a philosophy. I don't know, just like the top down. How do you think about keeping your weight under control? And maybe it's, you know, it's kind of like a, a fitness thing where, you know, you're not trying to be at maximum fitness 12 months a year. You're trying to be at maximum fitness for your most important race. And, and maybe your best weight is for that most important race also. And, um, and so there's like, you know, kind of a, a seasonality. I'm not sure where you would go with this, but why don't you just tell us what you think is true? Sure. You know, uh, you know, I wrote a book called racing weight, which was published, uh, I think in 2010, I think 2010. And, you know, I probably couldn't get that book published today because, um, you know, the topic of, of, weight and weight management in endurance sports has become kind of a third rail you know it's like it's been kind of politicized but you know quite honestly i i, I just don't think that that is sane <laughs> like you know i just I, I just don't think the denial of the truth is ever the way through like you know i, I get it that you know an overemphasis on weight and weight management is, you know, can be a slippery slope to bad things like, you know, body dysmorphia and eating disorders for a lot of athletes. But yeah. the, the fact is like body weight and body composition are factors in endurance performance. Like that's, that's just reality. And so if you're a performance oriented athlete, it's one of the factors that is worth actively considering and, and addressing. I'll just jump in and say that, and there's more to it than that. I, I mean, that probably is what your book was about. But, you know, I'm not really as worried about that as I used to be. I'm I'm more just trying to be a healthy person. And yep. I want to keep my, yep. you know, I want to keep my body fatness down. Because when my body, I'm, my body is really sensitive. And when my body fat gets over somewhere in the 20s, I start having problems in my blood. Uh, I start having uh, blood sugar issues. and. Yep. Um, and that sort of thing. And so I'm just trying to keep it down just from, just from a health perspective. And, yep. you know, and I like looking like a person who's in shape and, and, you know, and, and I can have all the muscles in the world, but if they're all covered up by <laughs> a layer, uh, then I'm not getting that same self-satisfaction that I, that I might otherwise. Uh, another thing is um, I, it, it's on my mind today because uh, I was outside and it was hot as, I mean, as Hades. And 
the more body fat you've got on your body, the harder it is to blow off heat. So yep. if you're exercising in the heat, then that's a that's a consideration also. So there's yep. a lot of reasons to not want to have any extra. Of course, that's easier said than done. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. And you know, in terms of the you know the the said part of said than done. It's important to be, you know, regardless of whatever, you know, the salient reason for wanting to be lean is for you as an individual athlete, the process is basically the same. And, you know, I think it's a mistake to set arbitrary goals. Like I want to weigh this, or I want my body fat percentage to be that unless it's experience based. And you know, that that's where you, you know, feel and perform your best or are your healthiest. It's best to maintain a process focus and just do things by the book. You know, my my own bias is to focus on best practices as demonstrated in the real world by the most successful athletes versus, you know, science is great. I definitely, uh, you know, if you read my books, there it's filled with science, but I always I always pay attention to real world be- best practices first. And and that's what you see, you know, with, with athletes who you know, not only get to the top, but stay at the top over the time. There's a lot of consistency in, in what they do in terms of, of their, their diet and training that allows them to be lean. And I get it. Like not everyone is a genetic lottery winner, like born with the makeup required to go to the Olympics, but we're all human. And so, you know, if you, if you scale things appropriately, it's like a, a I'll have what he's having type of uh, approach. Um, uh, that makes perfectly good sense that, you know, you don't want to set arbitrary targets because you don't know whether that's like possible for you or you don't know what you need. But the idea of just getting better is good. And and that'll take you where you want to go or yep. where you can go. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when you get to the specifics, you know, the number one thing, and I'm kind of thinking about what you've shared about your own, your own case, um, a focus on quality over quantity is is super important, you know, because your body is not stupid. You know, when when it tells you to eat, it's generally doing so for a legitimate reason, you know, especially if, if you're an active person. Yeah. But what specifically you choose to eat can make a big difference. And, and so if you if you if you base your you know, sometimes this requires saying no to the donut. But, uh, you know, if you generally, you know, this for me, it's sort of easy. I always found it much easier to choose a better food than to choose to say no to food in general. But, you know, regardless whether of whether that's easy or difficult for you, that's kind of what you want to do. Like if you're hungry, go ahead and eat, but try to choose, you know, minimally processed or unprocessed foods, high quality for foods versus low quality foods, because they categorically those foods are more satiating so you'll you you'll fill up with uh fewer calories so it's not about you know denying your hunger or or going hungry uh you know go ahead and eat as much as you need to in order to like not be awake at 2 a.m you know craving something but but focus more on quality than quantity yeah that makes sense Uh, i i did a podcast with a person who was advocating for uh, I'll call it more of an intuitive eating approach. Yep. And the key to that, because I, I've heard that before, and I always thought, if I just eat whatever I want, it's, I mean, it's going to be bad. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, what she was saying is what you were saying is that, you know, you only have really high quality things in the house. You eat things which require you to chew them. 
so it takes time to eat mm -hmm. them. You fill your belly with one-third water, one-third food, and one-third air. And you eat until you are not hungry anymore, not until you're full. And the key is to take your time because it takes your body some mm -hmm. time to recognize that it has gotten the nutrients it needs and tells you, oh, we're satisfied now. And if you are eating things that you don't you barely need to chew, you know, if you're like my dog and, you know, you just wolf everything down. I mean, you, you could eat a lot of calories mm -hmm. really fast. And mm -hmm. now you're like, you. I mean, we've all felt it, that, oh, my God, I'm going to die. You know, I'm so full. It's like, why did I eat that much? You know, that was crazy. So that makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, there is a quantity piece woven into, you know, the – you know, the, the mindful eating guidance you got from your previous guest. So it, I'm not saying it's all quality and, and, you know, eating mindfully or intuitively, you know, there is, there is a quantity element to that. And that just, you know, the, the point I always make when the discussion, you know, comes to this point is that, you know, try to find an animal in the wild in nature that requires like that depends on counting calories to avoid overeating. Like, have you ever seen like a super obese deer <laughs> or like, no. like, you know, just a falcon that didn't know when to put the fork down? No. And what research shows is that humans, you know, we are animals too, believe it or not. And, and we're born with the same ability to regulate our own eating based on, mm. you know, just internal signals of, of appetite and satiety. What happens is that, due to environmental factors, like we stop paying attention to those signals. So that's all that on the, on the quantity side, that's all that, you know, mindful or intuitive eating really entails. It's just like not eating when you're not hungry, you know, like not, not finishing your plate just because it's there. Don't want to waste it. Yes. Right. Exactly. Or just like, you know, just like you have breakfast at home, then you go to the office and someone brought donuts and you eat one just because it's there. Right. Like, so again, like trying to live in constant denial of appetite is a losing formula. Like you're not going to succeed that way. But if you, if you increase your diet quality and if you just you know, are able to set, distinguish between physical hunger and what's called hedonic hunger, which is like, I just feel like eating it, um, then it can be very sustainable. And it's, it's really about habit building. If you feel stuck in current habits, like, it just doesn't have to be hard in the long term. The, the initial shift, yeah, it's going to be a yeah. little bit disruptive. But once you once you build those new habits, then they have their own momentum. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually really good at willpower, right up until the moment I'm not, <laughs> and so I, I can't rely on that. So I, I'm interested in understanding if you have thoughts on how to form habits. But before we dive into that, I, I, I heard you mention head hunger versus belly hunger. Yep. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So that's the colloquial version of physical versus hedonic hunger. And yeah, belly hunger is like, you know, that's what the deer and hawks have and what human infants have before we, we stop paying attention. And, and that's, you know, uh, you know, obviously, if you go a certain amount of time without eating anything, you're going to get a rumbling stomach. Uh, you're you're going to uh, experience cravings to eat that aren't tied to, you know, the fact there's a donut in front of you or just a matter of like, I always eat at noon. 
and it's noon, so I'm going to eat. Yeah. Um, so that's that's physical hunger. Um, you know, it can be like you know a decline in energy uh, related to you know blood glucose levels, those sorts of things like that. That empty feeling uh, that you need to fill that that's physical mm-hmm. hunger. It's uh, in irreducible reality. Hedonic hunger is just the desire to eat, uh, either as a matter of routine right. or because the food is there or because yeah. the food is pleasurable. Right. I enjoy eating, and, and I like to eat while I watch TV or whatever. Yes, um, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so there's, so these are habits also, yep. and, and we need to replace bad habits with good habits. Do you have like a, a way that you find that's really useful? Yeah, number one is to focus, uh, again, on increasing the quality of what you eat, you know, because you're going to get more satiety from fewer calories if you choose whole grains versus processed grains, if you, you know, choose solid foods over, you know, liquid sources of of calories. So that's number one. Uh, Uh So go ahead and fill up, uh, but fill up on on unprocessed foods, and and, uh, that, that takes care of half of it. The other half of it is... You know, just you know, breaking the habit. You know, the various ways that you eat when you're not actually hungry. So that that can, um, you know, I, I, there's a study I reference in uh, in in the endurance diet that in, where you know they had people just. It usually works better if you want to try this experiment on your own. It works better on a weekend or any time when you have like a couple days off work when there's like you're out of your your usual workaday routine. And you yeah. just wake up and what, and you forget about your normal eating routine and just eat when you're hungry. So, you know, for me, I normally eat breakfast as soon as I wake up, regardless of whether I'm hungry or not. So if it were me, I would wake up and actually check in with myself. And if I wasn't hungry immediately, I would wait until I was and then I would eat and I would serve myself a portion, uh, you know, that allowed me to to stop before I was stuffed, you know, but then I was, you know, comfortably, comfortably satiated. And then I would wait again, despite whatever my routine is, I would forget my normal lunchtime, wait until I was actually had those physical hunger signals again. So it's just a kind of like retraining. It's just, it's really just a form of, of like, you know, like we have a mind, we have a body, they're not always talking to each other. And, and so there are ways of just like getting them to talk to each other again. And it, it, you know, it doesn't have to be hard, but it does have to be in, intentional. Like it's not just going to happen yeah. because yeah. you wish it. So don't just eat without thinking. Check in with yourself. Don't just eat because it's time or because you're bored or you know you have a craving. Just think think about your body and whether you are actually hungry, and then you, you go through the path of not eating any more than you need to stop being hungry. Yeah, and you don't have to do that sort of winging it approach. You know, that's more of like a, a habit breaking thing. So we we need routines, but but what you're doing is is that, you know that that's sort of a a transition to establishing new routines that are based yeah. on your actual physical hunger. Cool. All right. So I have a, a few related topics here that that we can hit. Uh, just check them off, like. Hydration. So um, I had just mentioned that drinking a bunch of water while you're eating helps to fill your belly. But I think being hydrated, it helps for a lot of things. One thing in particular is that it helps if you're eating salty foods, then having water while you're eating salty foods is going to help keep your blood pressure from spiking. What do you think about hydration? Well, you know, I don't know if you use video for your podcast, but you know, no. you and I, 
okay, you don't, but the three of us can see each other right now. And you've probably seen yes. me picking up this like bright multicolored water bottle yes, periodically. It's quite beautiful. Like, yes, it's quite beautiful. I got it at my local supermarket. Um, I, if they'd had any other color, I would have chosen that one, <laughs> but, but this is the only option they had. Um, but yeah, I take this thing everywhere I go. So like, I, I'm, I'm a maniac for hydration, not because like, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to waterlog myself, but like water is pretty darn good for you. And, yeah. and it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to overdo. And so, yeah, like, it's another thing, like, like, for me, I've just been doing this for years and I recommend it for everyone. Like, you know, so much of it is just, you know, human, we're so lazy that if it's like not right in front of you, you're probably not going to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to have to go to the bathroom. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> right. Yeah. How hard is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I just put up with it. I try to go for aisle seats on airplanes whenever possible yes, because yes. I, I'm that I'm that guy. Yes. Uh, but, but, but yeah, like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's good for you. And like you said, like, you know, a big part of like satiety comes from stomach volume, like the, you know, the volume of the bolus in your stomach. So even if yeah. it's non-caloric, you know, which water is, uh, yes, you know, that, that's another very effective way of just giving yourself an easy assist in, in managing your weight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think that it's also good for elimination of wastes and, and all kinds of things. So, um, my wife has, for ever since I knew her, has been drink. Has carry, she's got her own water bottle. She carries around with her all the time, and and now all my daughters ha follow her lead on that. And I always was like, hey, you know, it's possible to drink too much water, and the answer is, yeah, but you got to drink a lot, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and drinking more than I was drinking is what I needed to do. So I'm a big fan. Um, I actually I don't drink just pure water. I, I'm a green tea addict, and so that's. That's how come I go to the bathroom all the time. Right I wanted on. to ask you about alcohol. What do you think about alcohol? Yeah, it's funny. You know, uh, <laughs> there's so much research being done on alcohol, and it seems like the pace of it has accelerated. <laughs> right on. Okay. All right, there you go, Glenn. <laughs> uh, what is that, by the way? Is that sake it's soju? Or soju, yeah. It's a Korean drink. Okay. <laughs> what is it, though? We, don't, oh, it's, we it's, can't read. Oh, it's soju. I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a rice wine. That they mix with different right on okay. delicious. Okay. <laughs> okay. Speaking of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the, the research on, on alcohol is all over the place. You know, uh, I, I, I have a chapter in my book, Diet Cults, uh, called uh, Chocolate, Wine, and Coffee, uh, which is uh, – and, and the focus there is like it's a little bit about um, – it's a little bit about how, you know, some research suggests that – small amounts of chocolate and actually actually you know, on coffee it's actually fairly a large amounts of coffee and small amounts of wine are, are good for health and again like you can find studies on either side but the, more of the focus on on uh, of that chapter kind of the point i'm trying to make there is that pleasure itself enjoyment itself is healthy yeah. like like experiencing the pleasure of taste um, ex experiencing kind of like, um, you know, the cultural elements of enjoying a glass of wine with, with friends is good for you. And yeah. so, you know, there's this, ten this sort of this reductionist tendency to 
you know, those of us who are very focused on health and fitness outcomes to sort of forget about psychology <laughs> and sociology and just focus too much on physiology. But we have to kind of look at, at the whole picture. And sometimes, sometimes something you do that uh, on paper is not the best thing for your physical health is a net positive for your overall health. And again, like you can't go yeah. too far with that. Like, it, you know, if you're if you have a tendency to overindulge in this, that, the other thing, you know, don't take what I'm saying as as license <laughs> to continue yeah, yeah. overindulging. But yeah, uh, yeah and I, I will say, like, you know, in my research, like, you know, studying the world's best endurance athletes, they all, you know, very, very few of them were teetotalers, for example. Most of them were like, you know, moderate drinkers, like, you know, a glass of wine with dinner types of folks. So, uh -huh. uh, yes, it's okay. Okay, I have two more points on this, and then we'll, we'll move into the sugar thing. I wonder if you have a point of view on this. I believe that a lot of people feel like their body composition is a bit of destiny. I am actually allowed to say this because I thought this. When I was a kid, when I was 19 and 20 years old, I thought I would grow up and I would look just like my father who had a big belly. And so when I was buying things that were going to last a long time, you know, like when I bought a, a buoyancy compensator for scuba diving, you had to get one that would fit around your waist. And I didn't want to get one that fit around my 34 waist. I wanted <laughs> to get one that would fit around my 38 waist that I inevitably was going to have. Mm -hmm. So I bought the bigger version <laughs> and that damn thing never fit me. <laughs> there was a period of time in my life when what happens to people is they buy bigger pants over time you know, 34s and then 36s and then it was 38s and then I went, God damn it, no. And I went back to 34s. Now I had the advantage of being kind of a skinny person. I have some muscle mass on me because I hated being skinny when I was a kid and I lift weights all the time. And But I still have that natural leanness and so it's easier for me than it is for other people. But what do you think? Do you think that anybody, if they put their mind to it, can get the body composition that they want? Yeah, it's, you know, it it's not so much what I think is, you know, what the real experts in this area think, you know, the, you know, I just, I probably look at the same science you do. And, it, you know, what, what you're getting at is the old nature nurture question. And you can ask virtually any type of question about, uh, you know, a human characteristic. Um, and it's going to be not all one or the other. So for sure, I mean, the science is clear that there is, you know, sort of an, an inherited component uh, to body weight and body composition. Uh, but there is also, I mean, environment is a huge factor as well. So, you know, if, if we're looking, you know, if I have someone in front of me who says, you know, I'm just a bigger person, I'm, I'm doomed to have a belly, you know, what I would say to that person, you know, I would come at them from both sides. Like one, like, you know, that, that may be true. Like it may be more difficult for you. And it's actually not just genes. It's also your life history. You know, even if you were like, you know, not genetically predisposed toward um, obesity, but you were overfed in your early life, like that's yeah. it, to, to a certain degree, that's irreversible. So, you know, the, it's a blurry line actually between nature and nurture. It's like your whole history, you know, from conception on, uh, mm -hmm. is a factor. So, you know, for that person, like, 
you know, I, I would be wary of just, you know, cudgeling them with the idea. It's like, oh, you just lack willpower. Like, <laughs> get over yourself. You know, it, it could be true. But, uh, you know, there are some, you know, there are those who, for whom it's, it's, it, it's excuse making or, you know, like a kind of fatalism. Uh, and, and, and so for that same person, I would also say, but, you know, be open to the possibility that you actually, you know, w- you know, with some, with some changes, like you actually could, you know, get leaner than, than you currently think is possible for you. So, you know, I've just, yeah. you know, kind of play both yeah. sides of it. Okay, good. Uh, well, that makes sense. And, and, and maybe for some people, they, it's not worth it. They don't want it that bad uh, or, or don't want it at all. It's like, well, that's fine. You know, but if you did want it and you just feel like it's impossible, don't. It, it might be harder, right. but it's not impossible. Uh, okay, and so supplements. And I'm not talking about performance-enhancing supplements like caffeine or something, but things which you think are useful for controlling weight or controlling eating or that sort of thing. Like maybe caffeine is one of those things, you know, maybe it stimulates your metabolism a little bit and you burn, you know, four extra calories a day. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but um, <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah. You know, supplements, um, you know, just broadly speaking, I, I, I am not ideological one way or the other on supplements. I'm very case by case. So it's just yeah. like, let, let's look at the supplement. Let's look at the intended use. Let's look at the evidence. Um, and so that's true with respect to the performance enhancing things, the health supplements, and those that, that are, are more oriented toward weight management. Um, I will say this, though, you know, there, there's, there's, a, a silver bullet mentality that you see in people who te- you know who want to lose weight and tend to reach for supplements yeah. and what you very often find in these individuals is that they're not taking the low-hanging fruit like they're not exercising their diet yeah. quality is low and they, they just you know see an infomercial with some you know miracle weight loss supplement advertised yeah. they buy that and they hope that that allows them to achieve the results they want without doing the fundamental stuff. So that's the problem I have. It's like, you know, if if you, if you want a supplement to take you the last 2% of the way to the promised land with your body composition, great, but let's focus on the blocking and tackling first, like get more active, improve your diet quality, uh, you know, you know, eat more mindfully. um, And then we'll see about the supplements. Very interesting. So it becomes kind of like a crutch and, and it maybe even gives people an out. Well, I tried, I, I bought, you know, these ground up fruit and vegetable <laughs> pills, which were supposed to burn fat and it didn't work. So it's, it's impossible. Yep. Um, I'm off the hook. So, you know, try something <laughs> more likely to work if you're going to try something. Okay. And so here's the last thing that I had treading on thin ice here. <laughs> guy who wrote a book about a diet what cults diet cults that's a great title i belong to a diet cult at one point <laughs> and i actually think that it changed my body for the better something that i have come to believe is true some people are really metabolically healthy you know it doesn't matter how old they are or even you know their body uh composition they they just you know they just are lucky you know they have good genes i guess um you know, for the most part, I think you have to be a healthy person to have good metabolic flexibility where your body can 
burn carbs and you, you know, you eat some carbohydrates, even sugar, and you get a spike and then it comes back down and, and then you, but if you don't eat, you, you know, you're burning fat, you know, if, if it's some low effort thing and your body's just, you know, you just switch back and forth between burning glucose and burning fatty acids. But other people like me at one point in my life, I did not have good metabolic flexibility. Uh, my body was sort of on this roller coaster of, I was hungry a lot. I was eating foods that spiked my insulin and I've got type two diabetes in my family. So I'm, I'm sort of weak genetically in that area. And then I was eating in a way and I was a little overweight and all of that was sort of conspiring to damage me there. And then I, I ended up doing a, uh, a keto diet for about four months. Uh, and I'll say that for about two weeks, that was pure hell. <laughs> I totally felt awful sick. But eventually, even though I ha it's been like five years since I did that, I now have great metabolic flexibility. I can just not eat for a day. No problem. I don't, I don't even get hungry. I can fast for about two and a half days before I'm going to kill you and eat you. <laughs> and it's, it's probably like a day and a half before I'm like, I'm, I'm really noticing that uh, my body wants something. Um, but what do you think about this metabolic flexibility thing? I mean, it would seem like that would be something that would be useful for an athlete. And so is there any way that you like to help your athletes train to be better at that? Um, you know, it, it's really not a focus in, in the work that I do. I think probably because, you know, the folks that I'm, I work with one-on-one -on -one are already there. Like they're all, they're like that. That is their baseline or or, or starting point. Um, but but what you said is true. In, in, you know, and it's it's not just you know your single anecdote. It's like it it's scientifically validated that when you get off track, you can get yourself back on track with with a, a radical shift back to center with your diet. Doesn't necessarily have to be keto, actually. Um, it could actually, it, there's studies showing that similar results are obtained with a plant-based diet, for example. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, you know, you know, for me, like, like I don't, I guess that, that met metabolic flexibility is not a, a goal unto itself because like that's, that's something that most of us are born with. You know, yeah. hu humans are nature's ultimate omnivores. And, you know, the, the point I made when I wrote that first edition of Racing Weight in 2010, when, you know, it was all like it, every popular diet out there was macronutrient obsessed. It was like the 40, 30, 30 thing or Atkins right. or whatever. It was like, it was like, there was nothing else. There were no other characteristics in human diet other than macronutrient right. ratios. And the point I made was like, Guess what, folks? It's not a case of one false move and you're doomed. Like, you know, you, you can be more or less equally healthy and fit with a variety of different macronutrient ratios as long as what you're eating, you know, your, the sources of your carbs, fats, and proteins are, you know, natural, unpressed, processed, high-quality foods. So and almost any of it, there are exceptions, but almost any individual person could could switch from a 40 30 30 diet to a 60 20 20 diet and as long as the diet quality doesn't change they won't feel a difference at all or they could go in the other direction same same deal so if you haven't lost that metabolic flexibility 
well, you were born with it, so you're good. You're yeah. good to go. If you have, as you did, then then it becomes uh, you know a matter of some urgency to regain it, and then you're good to go. Awesome. All right, so let's transition into the sugar topic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a I'm sugar phobic. Uh, you know, my kids they hate it when I come and, and grab the thing that they're holding in their hand because I'm going right to what's the ingredients and I'm looking for the added <laughs> sugars and I'm getting better about not saying anything. But I still look and um, and I you know and I just try not to eat anything that I can that has added sugars and that includes and maybe I've gone too far. That includes what I eat while I am exercising. Now, of course, I don't, if I'm going to exercise for an hour or less, I don't eat anything. I'll just eat afterward. But if I'm, if it's going to be a long, you know, four or five hour ride, I'm totally going to run out of energy, at least um, high power energy. And so, uh, you know, I'll have some bars in my pocket, but I still have this feeling of, I really don't want to eat it. And sometimes I don't, and, and, and I'll, I'll pay a price. Now I don't bonk because I'm I'm a good fat burner, but you know, I, I can't go as fast. You know, I'm getting dropped because I don't have the fuel that uh, I need to go as hard as I need to go to stay with the, the group. So you wrote this article about sugar as a performance enhancer, not as a health food. And I wonder if maybe you could just like tell us your thinking on this. Yeah, I mean, that's another one where, um, you know, it's not me. Don't blame the messenger. You know, I am the messenger of science. And I, I will say that, like, there is no truth in sports nutrition better established than the truth that uh, sugar consumed during, um, you know, sort of limit testing bouts of exercise, whether it's high intensity or prolonged duration yeah. enhances performance. And it does so to a greater degree than any alternative, you know, yeah. um, it just works. <laughs> so, you know, that's irrelevant for, for 95% of the population where you're, you're not really trying to test your limits in individual bouts of exercise, then by all means, just go with water or electrolytes or what have you. Um, mm. But you know, if you're a performance-focused athlete, then even then you don't want to do it in every workout. Or, um, but you certainly want to do it in you know, sort of like your key limit testing workouts, and for sure, in longer distance races, yeah, you will you will go faster. Yeah, if you want your best performance. Uh, so there's a few topics around this. I, I mean, this business of not eating it all the time. Well, you surely don't want to only eat it on your race day because you, if your stomach doesn't like it, that's right. a bad time to find out. Are there digestion issues? I have an iron stomach and I never have any problems with any of this sort of thing. Unless I'm, first time I did a um, the triple bypass Grand Fondo, I was eating a bunch of peanut butter. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> That just sat in my stomach, you know, for four and five hours. I don't even remember how long now. So anyway, that doesn't digest. But I did actually, as I was cracking, I was like on the verge of bonking. I had a gel and it was like a little bit of God in a packet. It was <laughs> magnificent. It was magnificent. I was like reborn anew. But digestion, do, do some people have problems digesting this stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, folks are very quick to blame the gel, 
when they experience gastrointestinal distress during exercise. It's like, well, you know, I was exercising and I ate a gel and then I had GI distress. But, you know, the main cause of GI distress during exercise is exercise. <laughs> you know, okay. like humans, like we were not designed to take in any form of nutrition while you know, we were running exactly so yeah. like you know it's not gatorade's fault <laughs> you know so um you know that's one thing and, and, and what the science shows is like any any alternative like you know try eating a steak during a marathon like that's not going to go any very well yeah. either so so you know and, and and for sure you know and also i will say this what the science shows is like the um, the number one predictor of GI distress during a race is a history of the same. So um, you know some people are clearly more you know disposed toward that. You know y you okay. have your cast iron stomach. Uh, I I am fortunate too as well. Not everyone does, and there are yeah, actually yeah. some people who you know if they run a marathon without taking in anything but water, they will still get. GI distress and so they can't uh -huh. they can't blame you know the the gel in that case so uh, but, but what the science also shows is that you you know the gut is trainable and and so the big mistake a lot of people make is they do nothing during training or very little and then they're just you know uh, feasting in the marathon or, or the grand fondo or, or whatever it is so you can increase your ability to absorb this stuff and to tolerate just simply to be more comfortable with some of the sensations you experience like it's okay to be a little uncomfortable i mean you know if you want to make an omelet you got to break a few eggs for crying out so like are your sure. muscles sore when you finish a marathon yes yeah. is that a problem yeah. no <laughs> um so yeah right. uh, some some gut training can help Okay. Okay. So that, that, that's a good tip. Uh, we, we wouldn't think that it'd be a good idea to eat these things all the time. They're not really good snacks because it, it's not health food. Just because it's a sports bar doesn't mean it's health food. It's a performance enhancer, not health food. So don't be eating cliff bars and gels for snacks. Another thing related to that, and, and I don't know, Glenn, if you've had this problem, I, I don't actually know anybody who's had it except me. And it's this like a rebound hypoglycemia thing where if I'll have sugar, like a high glycemic index food, like a Cliff Bar, you know, I'm, I'm naming them out here. I've eaten a lot of Cliff Bars over the years and, they, and I love them. But if I'll have a Cliff Bar in the hour before I'm going to race and then I show up for the race and I start my warm up, my legs are dead. And what I have come to understand is that the when I ate that bar without doing any exercise, my body went, oh, you just ate a cookie. Okay, insulin up. And it's trying to put that sugar away. And then I started exercising, which also puts the sugar away. And I put too much sugar away. Now I have low blood sugar. And so I feel like I, I'm ill. Something is wrong with me. And so I, uh, the only thing that I could think to do after years of struggling with it was that I didn't eat for three hours before a race. And then I had no problems, you know, maybe I, maybe I had a problem I didn't, I wasn't aware of, like maybe I didn't perform as well as I might've, but mm -hmm. I, that was the only solution I could come up with. What do you think about sugar before you start exercising? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, um, in preparation for this interview, I, I uh, just kind of refreshed um, the scientific, you know, 
literature on um, I knew we were going to be focusing more mostly on uh, sugar during exercise. But if yeah. you look at, um, you know, like the pre-race meal type of thing and yeah. uh, stu- studies looking at the effects of uh, low glycemic index versus high glycemic index meals. Yeah. You know, again, this is at the, you know, the population level and each of us is an individual. So there can be exceptions, but at the population level, it's a wash. It doesn't seem to really matter. Matter. I mean, uh. you know, you're definitely better off if you have something versus nothing. You know, so if you, you know, if your last meal before or your last nutrition intake before a, a morning race is your dinner the night before, not so good. Uh. Um, you'll tend to do better if you have some kind of breakfast, whether it's low or high GI. Again, if you're just like average Joe or or Jane exerciser. Okay. So yeah, it just like some some kind of carb intake will benefit you, and at the group level, it it doesn't really matter what it is at, at that point. So you know, it behooves you to do a little bit of experimentation, like listen to your body, see how different patterns affect you, and then find a formula that works for you. Yeah, and so that probably is true also for how much sugar and when you consume it while you're exercising as well. I mean, uh, a lot of people have experienced bonking. It's a truly miserable experience <laughs> that, that I, has only happened to me a few times when I thought it would be smart to, you know, not eat all day and then go do a spin class. And, you know, and now I'm shaking, right? But that's sort of the end. You know, once that's happened and you got the cold sweats and you're shaking and your heart is doing terrible things, you're done. You know, get you could get some food and you could start to feel better, but you know you're not going to like recover and get back into the pack and finish the race, kind of a thing. So, how can people tell? I mean, what do you advise people? How can they? I mean, first of all, I suppose they could experiment and just see what works for them, and maybe the air on the side of having a little too much or something like that for that you know important race. But is there other like physiological symptoms that they might be feeling that is a clue? Uh, I mean, I used to ride with a guy who said because I'd say, well, well, when do you start eating? And he goes. When I start writing, it's <laughs> like, I'm just always eating it. You know, I start, I start writing, I take a bite, but he waited until he started at least, but then he was just eating continuously. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah. You, you know, when you mentioned that, uh, when you had that experience in the Grand Fondo and you, you had a gel and it was like a taste of, of God, um, you know, you know, I assume that, that you meant there was something almost instantaneous about it, you know, that you got, you noticed the benefit before metabolically it could possibly, you know, in, be in your system. And the reason is that there's actually a neural mechanism there. You know, again, we, we're getting back into, you know, the mind you know, piece where, you know, you have um, sugar receptors on your tongue that communicate uh-huh. directly to parts of your brain that control perception of effort. So, you know, it doesn't even, you don't even have to wait for it to get down into your stomach and to absorb into your, your bloodstream. Like as soon as your brain knows that you have an exogenous energy source coming in, it's like party time. <laughs> it releases energy. Yes. That's interesting. So just the taste of the sugar, your body sort of the governor lets go and you yes. and it give it allows you to go harder again yes and and that is why it, it uh your friend is right it actually is in in your best interest again if you're if you're in some type of limit testing effort to start 
early um, before yeah. you're actually even close to being depleted. Just let your your brain know, hey, I got your back here, and uh, we're going to have some some extra energy coming in throughout this. Uh, and then the metabolic uh, benefits kicked in, kick in. And, and I will add this as well. You know what the research clearly shows is like uh, there is like in terms of like the amount of sugar you take in or, or the rate at which you take it in, the more the merrier, like, like the, no upper limit has been found to like the, the more you take in, the more your performance benefits, the, the limiter is your, your tolerance. And so the more, so you really want to be able to take in as much as you can tolerate. Um, so that's where we get back to the experimentation. You just have to find out, you know, what your limit is in, but, you know, again, you know, don't have a cliff bar for lunch. Uh, but you know, if you're trying to maximize performance, go ahead and lean on sugar. Um, and then it's a case of the more, the merrier with the caveat that you have to figure out and train your limit. I gotcha. And if people are worried about like me of getting fat, eating sugar while I'm exercising, the normal dosage, I think is something like 90 grams an hour. That's like 360 calories. So as long as you're burning 360 calories, which is not a very high level of effort. But check this out. Okay. Uh, something that I don't know if you know this or not, but I, uh, for your audience, um, what, what studies have also shown is that when people take in calories during exercise, they voluntarily, unconsciously take in fewer calories the rest of the day. So even that part balances out. So, you know, oh, wow. that's generally how it works. Like, like your body makes the best use of calories when they're most needed <laughs> yeah, yeah, and everything else just kind of adjusts around it. Yeah. So it's using the energy that you're eating. Whereas if you eat it later, then maybe it's storing it. Right. Well, Matt, this was tremendous. We have run out of time and I guess I would like to give you a chance to add anything that I was not wise enough to ask you about and then tell our audience how they can find you online. Sure thing. Uh, I mean, you were wise enough to ask me. (laughs) (laughs) You're a good man. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this is, this is fun. You know, like I, I, I I was just happy to follow your lead uh, with your questioning. You know, I I have other interests sometime. If you want to talk psychology or the nuts and bolts of training, I'll be happy to, to come back on, but this was a a great discussion. Um, And you know, the best place to find me online is my personal website, mattfitzgerald.org. I'm also on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those good things. Not TikTok yet. I'm too old. (laughs) They won't let you on. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll get the, that website for sure in the show notes. Gentlemen, you have a good evening. You as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about managing body composition with Matt Fitzgerald. You can find more information about Matt and his books and other writings in the show notes. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for a newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again. Thanks again.